Hello, all you Rays fans, and welcome back to The Hit Show. This episode being recorded on April 26th. And wow, what a great week for the Rays. I want to welcome back to The Hit Show, managing editor of DRaysBay.com, Danny Russell, and of course, Darby Robinson. Guys, welcome back to the cast. Thank you kindly. Good to be back. And we are also happy to welcome back a veteran voice of the blog, editor Ian Malinowski. Ian, welcome to The Hit Show. Thanks for having me. Happy to be here. All right, guys. So very interesting week for the Rays. They they certainly spent some time in in uh, New York. And, of course, the long-awaited debut of the number one pitching prospect, Blake Snell. Love to get your takes on his debut performance. Darby, what was your thoughts? Well, it's, I think, something... I think we were all re- really excited about hearing the news that he was going to come up and then actually seeing it and having him pitch... Uh, effectively and and show off some of the some of kind of his amazing arsenal was just really really you know all all we're going to dive into it but like just the whole experience of watching him in Yankee Stadium getting strikeouts pitching you know in the mid 90s with his fastball breaking off great curveballs that was just a a super exciting start and makes you really you know wonder about what what can happen with this guy coming in the future. I mean, it was a fantastic curveball. Uncle Charlie was falling, what, 11 to 5? And there was how many miles an hour difference? Because he was throwing that at 74, I think, was the average. And he, his fastball can, you know, light up the scoreboard, right? Yeah. Um, so so looking at the numbers, it was pretty, pretty uh, you know, it is small sample sizes, but he was at around average of 95 miles per hour and – that curveball was around 74, 75. Uh, Fangraphs pitch FX has it at 20.8 miles an hour difference, uh, which is which is Kershaw esque. You know, maybe not, maybe not quite as much break um, as Kershaw, but you know who who can get that? But uh, but that huge huge mile an hour difference is incredible. Um, Beyond the box score, I did a sort of breakdown of velocity differences of different pitches. And uh, their their league average curveball d- difference in velocity was about fourteen point two miles an hour, and so that would be well well above average, and uh, really hard to uh, to adjust going from a ninety five mile an hour fastball, you know, breaking in on you to then having this giant loopy curveball just dropping right in to the zone. Now, Ian, you had actually done a piece talking about perhaps a second curveball that Snell uh, wields? That was from a thing that Baseball America said. They said that Snell Snell has two curveballs. Um, Snell says says he throws the curve a little bit different. I, I couldn't, couldn't really see it. It's possible he throws a different, um, throws one a little bit harder, one a little bit softer, but it wasn't, it wasn't really apparent there. Um, and, and there's a lot of things that pitchers do where, where they like, they change their grip a little bit. They put a little bit more pressure on one side. They, they switch things up and like they can manipulate the ball. It doesn't mean that, that we should think of it as separate pitches. And, and I'm not quite there on Snell. I also want to back up the excitement bus on this curveball a little bit, because the one thing that we definitely know is that it's a lot slower than his fastball. Um, it's as, as we said, like maybe the biggest velocity difference 
between curveball and fastball. But I don't think that it's very well documented that velocity difference between curve and fastball is a good thing or a very helpful thing. It's definitely interesting that Snell has it. He might do very good things with it. It's just not a thing I want to right now say like, oh, that's a great curve. He's going to dominate with that curve. There's, it was a better curve than I expected to see, but the curve is not the thing I'm excited about with Blake Snell. It wasn't very well documented in general, him having a curveball. And I would echo what you said about the curve maybe being a nebulous pitch. And I think that's true of most pitching prospects anyway. They might have their fastball section of their arsenal. There's that changeup that they're working on. And then there's this nebulous thing we call their curveball and their slider, and it just all kind of happens. I remember Alex Colomay kind of had a really weird situation for a long time in a similar fashion. And what was really fun was the fact that we got that tasty, tasty strikeout of Brian McCann, who has been the Yankees' best hitter thus far, and he was just completely tied up. Uh, To see him shut down at the plate and just watch this looping curve come in was uh, not only effective but kind of hilarious. The thing that is really going to make Snell go is that his fastball was way better than I had thought it was going to be. Like, there were these, these scouting reports on him that they said above average fastball, maybe plus fastball. They said low, low, low 90s, mid 90s. Um, all, all of these things were, were out there, but the fastball isn't really real until I see it, until the, for me, the pitch FX cameras see it. And seeing Snell's, this is a really good fastball. Um, it's the type of fastball that that hitters can, uh, they have to spend all their attention um, getting ready for, thinking about. And that's the thing that's going to make all, all of his other three pitches work. It's, so, like, I don't really think it matters whether or not it's a good curve or a great curve. It's just a curve that is legitimately different. And he has a changeup that's legitimately different. And his slider, it's, it's not a great slider. It's a good slider. It's an okay slider, but it's legitimately different than all of the other things. And just that depth, when combined with a fastball that they really have to concentrate on, that's the thing that made me excited about Snell. Because, honestly, this is a guy, he can go through a lineup with just his fastball if he can locate it. I totally agree with that. I think, you know, we saw with, with his curveball, you know, some nice stuff for the gifts. Uh, you know, having Brian McCann just sitting there and seeing it fall into a place. But we did see, you know, maybe not the strongest command on some of those other auxiliary pitches. Uh, but that, you know, if that if that was, if those come around with that fastball that can rise as well as it can, that is sitting at an easy 95, that will make him, that will take him to that next level. Uh, that That's the part that really, you know, when those things come around, if he can add... Uh, and use those pitches as weapons and not just sort of even even if it's just other looks, I think that can make him successful. But if he can use them as a weapon, that takes him to that ace level. And I think it's important to remember that this was also his major league debut and his nerves had to be running wild. So we have to kind of discount this start a little bit. If his command was off or if his control was off, this is a kid walking into Yankee Stadium for the first time ever in the majors trying to make things work. And he was successful, and he was exciting, and I think that's really good. And I just need to see him do that for an entire season. If he was in the majors now 
it might take a really long time for him to consistently uh, deliver this over and over and over again now that people have actually seen him. But I will say that just having one taste of Blake Snell reminds me of how crazy it was that he went through every single step in the minors and just shut people down from high to double A to triple A last season. He was untouchable. And I would imagine seeing someone like Blake Snell for the first time shuts you down no matter who you are. And that's what's exciting. But a full season of Blake Snell at this point, the results might not be all that great. And it really sucks to throw cold water on it. But if he were in the major league rotation right now, uh, I would put the over under for his ERA uh, to be fair at something like 4.5. We don't know that he can do this consistently. Certainly looking forward to future starts from Blake Snell and talking about him here on the cast. Before we move on to the next subject, though, I want to get hot takes from you guys in terms of for the rest of just this season, what do you guys think? Do we see him as a, as a call-up when rosters expand? Do you think he's going to come back and forth between Durham? What, what realistically uh, can we expect from Blake Snell through the rest of 2016? Well, the promotion date uh, where his next opportunity comes is a call-up. But you're asking about full season time. And it's hard to peg that down because we have Super 2 status concerns, right? Um, right. The Super 2 date, we can't say exactly where it is, but um, if they if they call him up and leave him up in late May, that's probably safe. So so because because they don't need him, I'm certain we're not going to see him there full time before late May. If they need well, him there, it might be on the table. It might not. Yeah, May 24th is the first date where they actually need a consistent fifth starter to walk in there and pitch every five days. So it's possible it could be Blake Snow at that time. It's possible it could also be Erasmo Ramirez being his amazing self, or it could be Matt Andresi, who has major league experience already and might be just a, a more comfortable option. And at some point, it may be Alex Cobb. Um, and, and I'm not sure. I think if they think Alex Cobb might be coming back to it, they might not, not want to bring Snell up and then send him back down and, and keep jumping him. Um, Andresi, they've already jumped him up and down. I, I don't think they care so much about that. But don't forget that Alex, Alex Cobb is in the mix as well. You know, Jeff Passan was on Twitter uh, during Blake Snell's start trying to make noise about how if this were not a small market team, if this was not Tampa Bay, and if this was the Cubs, and the Rays were calling such a good pitcher up for one start and then sending him back down, that there would be a lot more uproar if the media in our market was say, stronger or uh, mer- more persistent. And I really took issue with that. I'm not sure if any of you guys uh, were also on Twitter at the same time. But I don't see a really great comparison, particularly with Chris Bryant for the Cubs, who uh, that was the narrative that he was trying to weave. Uh, Chris Bryant was a clear superstar prospect, but he was going to displace Mike Olt from full-time third base. Whereas if the Rays called up Blake Snell now, uh, there's not just there's there's just not room for him. He would be displacing who Matt Moore from the fourth starter position. Uh, it just didn't make any sense. If I were betting on the ERA between Blake Snell and Erasmo Ramirez as a starter for the rest of the season starting now, I would bet on Erasmo. So I, I think I think that's that's very clear why no one should have uproar about Blake Snell being sent down. He's probably not the best option. And I think also the Rays, at the very least, have kind of earned a little bit of that cachet to to, you know, maybe give them a little bit more 
rope when it comes to their dealing with prospects, not just, you know, trying to manipulate the service time and, and save some money. But when we, you know, the, when we bring up these pitching prospects, there's a reason why the Rays have consistently, you know, top notch pitching prospects. They, they aren't rushing people They're They're treating them, uh, not necessarily with kid gloves, but they're, they know how to manage their talent when it comes to their starting pitchers. And, and yeah, like, you know, if, if, if it's a matter of a fifth starter between Blake Snell or Erasmo Ramirez, we saw what Erasmo has been doing, did last year as a starter in the fifth spot. And then we saw what he was doing this year and he's been one of our most valuable pitchers. So, so yeah, I think the Rays kind of have earned the right to, to sort of manage their team and, and use those prospects uh, the way that they have. And uh, I, yeah, I don't, I don't really see the same comparison with Chris Bryant. Very, I don't see that very accurate. Well, speaking of star pitchers, uh, we had Chris Archer take the mound against Baltimore. Uh, I guess it would have been yesterday by this by this clock, and uh, he goes six and two thirds scoreless against uh, a, a strong set of bats in Baltimore. They've they've been they've been hitting a lot of people around, and I'm I'm really curious. We got a lot of criticism on the podcast, actually, at, at the very first episode, I think, that we did as a group where we had said uh, we weren't really concerned about Archer's performance. Uh, I want to, and we also had some stories on the on the blog about Archer being back. We had a, a catcher change, and I'm curious to get your take. One, what do you guys think about, about Archer and his performance there? And two, what kind of impact did the change at catcher have on that performance? Um, I'll jump right in and say that I... I don't care who's catching Archer one bit. Like Archer's a Archer's a professional pitcher. Um, he 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 needs to to go out there and throw strikes, no matter who's catching him. And the problem with Archer hasn't been some type of vague sequencing, not not having the game plan right. It's just been he's not been able to locate his fastball. Pitching is hard when you can't locate your pitches, no matter how good they are. Major league hitters hit them. So, I mean, maybe he's, he's more comfortable. That's just sort of a thing that he has to get over if that's what's causing it. And I think he will because, as we said, Archer is very good. Players who are very good in most situations, you put them in another situation, and they're usually also very good. That's how we take large sample sizes and then predict small sample sizes from them. So I'm... I, I know we've been saying Archer is, is back. I, I sort of reject this this narrative of Archer ever having been gone. He had a couple bad games. I, I hearken back to Aaron Rodgers a couple years ago. R-E-L-A-X. Relax. It's Chris Archer. You know, it's the start of the season. Number of things, you know, could be off. And, and like Ian said, pitching is really hard. And if he was getting, you know, he was falling behind. You know, maybe a slider wasn't as sharp, but uh, for a number of reasons, you know, he he got hit by some really good teams and some really good hitters. And uh, I, I I think, you know, this is Chris Archer has shown enough in the major leagues that he's a type of pitcher that you can count on to to really cut through a lineup most of the time. And, you know, a couple of bad games at the start of the season, I'm not going to throw away. All that, all that sample, all the the glorious Chris Archer uh, highlights that are running through my head all the time. I think you raise a good point as well that it wasn't always just one pitch. 
you mentioned his slider. Well, that wasn't the problem on opening day. His fastball was the problem on opening day. And later, his slider sort of abandoned him. And it's just been inconsistency. It's been cold weather. It's been really good opponents. And I'm not worried. (laughs) I wasn't worried before, and I'm not worried now. I think if you hit the random button and reorganized every single plate appearance that Chris Archer pitched and only saw those uh, from the angle of looking at Chris Archer, you would not be able to tell a difference other than what maybe which ballpark he's pitching in. You wouldn't be able to see a difference between Chris Archer in game one, two, three, four, or five, even though he lost game one, two, three, four, and was credited with the win in game five. I mean, the one difference that you would see is a walk. Um, he, uh, he walked more guys over the first, the first several games. He walked more guys over the first several games than he did over the last season. In his last start, he, he didn't walk, he didn't walk any, anyone. So command mm-hmm. matters, control matters. Um, but uh, just because a guy is walking guys now doesn't mean he's going to keep walking them forever. So the general takeaway here, what I'm hearing is that uh, no big deal, a couple bad games, and he's back on track hopefully for the, for, to, to continue to be the ace that we expect him to be. Yeah, I think when we say Chris Archer's back, what we really mean is he's back on track. I like the way that you said back on track. I don't think he ever went anywhere. I think Chris Archer is Chris Archer, and he's amazing, and we all just need to take a chill pill. And if the next start out, Chris Archer, you know, has a bad inning and and doesn't, you know, pitch like he did in Baltimore, that's not that, you know, that one start was uh, an aberration either. It just means that, you know, that one game is, you know, things happen. Events happen. So, yeah, I, I don't know if, you know, we can say, like, okay, now we're always going to see Chris Archer just, you know, mow through lineups, not walk people, give up only weak contact, strike everybody out. I think we're just, you know, this is the type of guy that he's capable of every single time out. And whether that happens or not, that there's a million tiny things in baseball that that change the events that happen. And the thing that that was most interesting in Chris Archer's getting back on track game um, wasn't his his results so much, but the fact that he threw 20 change-ups. Chris Archer has never thrown 20 change-ups in a single game before. Uh, this was the first time. And some of them were like, meh, that's a change-up. It puts it in the hitter's head change-up. Some of them were 90 miles per hour diving diving off, off the plate. That's the type of thing that's a really good sinker sinking fastball for some players um, and Chris Archer is out there throwing it as as a change of pace if he can throw change-ups like that more often that's a type of Chris Archer that we haven't seen the biggest thing for me was his process in this last game that this was a Chris Archer that was truly a three-pitch guy I want to actually take us back to a game from last week from actually last Thursday which which is probably the same day that the last episode of the hit show dropped uh, you guys might remember this game. It was the last time that that the Rays matched up against David Price, and uh, we had a we had an interesting outcome. Rays ended up taking that game, twelve to eight, and were able to actually hang an eight spot on David Price's neck, which is its own little bit of uh, goodness. But what I really wanted to get an in, some input from you guys about was that uh, Odorizzi went down and gave up five runs in the first inning, and the Rays were able to kind of claw back. So, Darby, I'm curious as to what you think that that game says about both the offense as well as as the strength of our bullpen this season. That was a, yeah, really 
really wild game. And I think obviously going down, you know, five to one after the first inning, I think a lot of Rays fans, it'd be pretty understandable to kind of be like, well, this is a loss and uh Rays offense, you know, they can, they can put up more than five. They they've been showing that they have a bit of power this season, but yeah, I, it'd be fairly understandable to kind of give that up, but then seeing them come back and, and they kept putting in good at bats, even when they weren't, you know, kind of driving in runs, they were, they were pushing price to, to bad counts. He was having to work, uh, for the, for the first three innings that lasted an hour and a half total. Uh, he only gave up two runs, but he was, he was getting up there in pitches. Uh, and then when that fourth inning came around, and the Rays kind of unloaded on, you know, the six runs, kind of chased him from the game, tied it, took the lead, uh, and extended the lead. That showed what this offense is capable of when the whole team is kind of clicking. Uh, they, they were putting in good at-bats, not necessarily just aggressive at-bats. They, they decided to actually, you know, kind of settle in. They, they took some pitches. They fouled off pitches. They... They fought, and then they actually, once they got their pitch, they actually drove it really, really well. And, uh, yeah, David Price was definitely not his best game, uh, and and he got hit pretty hard, including Evan Longoria's first time. Uh, he actually got a hit off of his old teammate, uh, and Kirk Casale kind of got the the offense started, really. Uh, who, who Kirk Casale, his old teammate back in Vandy, uh, he definitely has David's number, but uh, it was good. How to many see. home runs does he have off of David Price? This is now what three? I it's think, three. Yeah, it's three. Right. Yeah, I think that's right. Three. Uh, he hasn't had that many opportunities too. So just yeah, the David Price killer, Kirkus Alley, um, and then yeah, and then Lagoria actually had you know what he did double and a home run mm-hmm. against him. So good. The whole offense looked really really good in that game. You know they started off with a run. They then. Jake Odorizzi did not pitch his sharpest game, but for his credit, after that five-run first, he pitches good enough. He's at least gives them four innings. Uh, he doesn't give up any more runs. He's still not pitching super sharp. Uh, that was, you know, the rest of those innings were kind of touch and go there a little bit, but he he still got it at least deep enough that the rest of the bullpen could try to kind of take it the rest of the way with, with mixed results on that day, but you know, pretty much they emptied the bullpen and uh, the offense, you know, kept, uh, kept answering anything the Red Sox had. Not to interject, but one of my favorite things about Odorizzi so far this season uh, in, in terms of his development is seeing a mature approach from Odorizzi when he's on the mound. That's not to discredit uh, his 2015 season, which was uh, fairly good, but he's had a couple starts here where, he just gets himself into jams or doesn't perform well, maybe even loads the bases. And he's he, he's like, I got this, guys. I'm going to stay steady, Eddie, as the Rays Radio guys would like to say. He's going to buckle down, and he's just going to keep on pitching. And it's a really respectable aspect of his game that even if he gives up a five in the first frame, he can turn around and continue pitching and get the Rays where they need to be. Jake Odorizzi is still he's he's the guy in the Rays rotation I am I am most worried about because what we see is a guy who is getting by on a on approach he doesn't have a lot of room 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 for error none of his pitches really pop so so we have a guy who he'll he can go out there he can mix his pitches he can fool you but if he isn't fooling you 
then then he's not necessarily going to put you away. Um, um, so it, it's really good that he has this mature approach, as as Danny said, because he's a guy who very much needs that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, special shout out in this game to Brandon Geyer, who batted second and was hit <laughs> not once, not twice, but three times by pitch in this game. <laughs> which <laughs> just a question of how many times could it happen in one game? And he seems to be perfectly fine with that. Not that any of them looked intentional for sure, but man, uh, it's a, it's a tough way to get on base, especially that many times in one game. And, and he like, it, it, you know, we, we really talked a lot about, you know, kind of like joking about like, you know, it's not really sustainable. You can't really predict, Oh, this guy's just going to get hit by a ton of pitches to get on base. I, at a certain point, you got to wonder how sustainable this is for just this guy. Uh, a couple of those pitches, they were slightly inside. And Geyer doesn't really lean into him so much as he just doesn't move, just kind of flexes there. And, and you know, most batters are going to slide a little bit out of the way. They're going to try to move. Geyer just is a statue that will just accept the ball bouncing right off of his elbow it looks super painful, and he just kind of just walks it down to first. Uh, and, and it was a great one-two punch at the top because Forsyth came up, hit, had three hits. Every single time Forsyth got a hit, Brandon Geyer got hit by a pitch afterwards. It was a amazing one-two combo <laughs> to set the table at at the top of the lineup. I think my favorite reaction to the Brandon Geyer three hit-by-pitches was the following day there was an article in the Boston Globe where they were kind of upset. And saying, how can Brandon Geyer get away with such a thing? And this is the same newspaper that had to cover Shane Victorino for multiple (laughs) seasons. There are very few people in baseball with this attainable skill. And Shane Victorino is one of those very few other people. So I did not see how there was any room for uh, whoever the editors were at the Boston Globe to be like, ah, sure, run this article. (laughs) And and just, just to point out an important difference, Shane Victorino wears an elbow pad. Brandon Geyer is all man. <laughs> Not a single bit of armor on the guy. No armor. I will say Brandon Geyer is a, is a guy who suffered. He had that horrible labrum injury where he needed seven anchors uh, put in his back in order to put his muscles back in place. He's broken fingers. Uh, he sat on the bench forever. He's toiled away in AAA, and now he's here. If how he's going to get on base is uh, turning into one of Augusta Rodin's best works of all time, then so be it. He's a productive race player and it's fantastic. But we do need to talk about the bullpen from that game. Yes. Yes. Let's quickly talk about the bullpen. What were your, what were your takes there? Uh, Especially as it relates to any Romero, Danny. Any Romero is a weird case. So he was the first guy to step up after Odorizzi. And I'm, you know, maybe I'm not talking about that performance specifically because this is a very exciting opportunity for any Romero. Jim Hickey has put a lot of faith in him in general, uh, talking him up as if he could be the the future closer for this team. But right now, this is his first opportunity to have a full season in the bullpen. And that fastball is coming in 96, 97, 98, 99. That uh, curve is looping in there and freezing guys. We've talked about Snell, similar kind of feel. But then he has this third pitch, and it's not the changeup. It's a cutter. And he, it's, it's another fastball. It's coming in maybe 92. 
And it, it's been effective in terms of him getting strikeouts and him being able to lock guys up. And it's just because it's something awkward. It's something unexpected. It's something different. The Rays' way has always been the rising fastball and a changeup. But he doesn't have that changeup. I don't think we've seen him throw a major league changeup in a few years now. But he's got this surprising cutter who comes in and you just say, oh, that was completely opposite direction of the curveball. And now you really don't know what to do with yourself because the fastball goes up, the curveball goes that way, the cutter goes that way. So is he uh, a multiple inning reliever, which is one of the other X factors we've been looking for? I'm not convinced that's the case yet. But any Romero could be very effective. And that's a really cool development. So that's my rant on any Romero. I think he's one of our most exciting bullpen pieces uh, for sure. I mean, he he's like you mentioned the the stuff he has, especially that cutter, adding that little extra dimension. Uh, we kind of mentioned it earlier with with Blake Snell, you know, having something that just gives batters another thing to think about, look for uh, that. That's huge. And if he develops that into, you know, if he keeps developing, I should say that into a, a really major league high level of, of pitching, um, that cutter could be the difference between him being a pretty darn good reliever to being a team's, you know, absolute relief ace closer. A couple other really quick thoughts on the bullpen, and then we can wrap this thing up. But I will say that uh, the race had a really interesting approach this week. We haven't gone through and talked about every single reliever from that game or in general, but it was amazing how often the Rays were utilizing the lefties in the bullpen this past week. Uh, they seem to really rely on the left-handed relievers calling in Danny Evelyn when you don't expect Dana Evelyn to get the call because they want to have a left-handed look. And I don't know if that's an early in the season approach or if that's just uh, a new wild way to approach uh, the Blue Jays or the Orioles or whatever might be going on. But that's something to watch, uh, how consistently the Rays are just sticking with one hand. And I, I, I guess the really other important thing we need to talk about is how amazing Erasmo Ramirez is. He had a bad outing recently. That should not be tainting our opinions of him at all. I am amazed by his mental fortitude to just be ready to go no matter who the opponent is, no matter what the series is, no matter if he needs to start and turn in five good innings, six good innings, or whether or not he needs to go in there and relieve in a high leverage situation. Uh, He's just the X factor on this team. He might be the most important pitcher on the Rays, and that's astounding. Uh, I think I said earlier this week online, you know, tell your April 2015 self that Erasmo Ramirez will be the most important pitcher on this staff, and and then compare that to how you feel about him today. It's just amazing to have him here. I am overjoyed, almost as joyed as he looks when he's on the mound, and I'm really excited to see what he uh, is and becomes and continues to do for this Rays team. Erasmo Ramirez with 14 strikeouts to one walk this season and unconscionably a four to one record. Somehow he keeps sneaking in there and, and poaching those extra wins, but certainly exciting to watch and looking forward to see how, how he continues during the rest of the season. All right, guys. Well, that's going to do it for this hit show. I want to say very, very special thanks to Darby and Danny for coming back. And of course, to our new new voice on the cast here, Ian, really appreciate your insights and hope that you will come back and join us at some point in the future. Thank you.
we are again soliciting for input, opinions, and thoughts about the cast. What can we do better? How can we talk about things that'll be more interesting to you guys? So find us on Twitter at The Hit Show. You likely have found out about this podcast on the D Rays Bay blog. Uh, but if you found us on iTunes, why don't you stop back there and actually give us a little rating? Drop a couple stars for some guys who love to talk about the Rays and help us find other great Rays fans. That's it for this week on The Hit Show. Hit Show.